Would you open your Bibles, please, to Psalm 47? In a moment, I'm going to read Psalm 47. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would use this Lord's day as a means of persevering grace in our lives. In the words of the prophet, I pray you would help us this evening to joyfully draw living waters from the well of salvation. I pray that the knowledge of you, Lord, would be the food that we desire to nourish ourselves on, that you would undertake for us, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would take the things that are the realities of who you are, what you are like, and Lord, help them to penetrate, help them to penetrate our dullness. Lord, heal our unbelief, Renew us, I pray, in the things of God, and that we could truly, genuinely say we believe. Not merely theoretically, but experientially, in the things and the stuff of our life. Pray for your glory and for our profit. Amen. My goal this evening is very simple, to pick up Psalm 47 and to make you think about God's great power. Our Lord taught us to pray for our daily bread, and I believe that this is part of what it means to experience God giving us our daily bread, that we would take the knowledge of God that he proclaims to be true about himself and that we would nourish our souls upon it. I have no intention of telling you this evening something that you don't already know. My intention is to encourage us and help us to be nourished on the things that we do know to be true, that they would penetrate into the practical daily living of our lives. As I read the psalm, you will see that the theme of the psalm is focused on kingship. It's not a word that is a regular part of our vocabulary. That's why it's important to read the Psalms, I think. And it, it gives words to our prayer vocabulary that we wouldn't usually use otherwise. It's not part of our, our regular talk. Things like king, things like shield, uh, things like that. You'll see that it is focused on the kingship of God and the themes are ones of enthronement of victory, and of authority. And, and I hope that you immediately see, as I did when I, when I read through the psalm, that, that they are not only indicative of what God's people experienced in all the history of God's redeeming acts in Israel, but it's also very, very clearly indicative of what the church experiences at Pentecost of the ascension of Christ and his rule over all the nations of the earth and his gathering of his inheritance into the place of salvation, which is called the church and the celebration and the rejoicing of God's people in the hope that their God is ruler over all things and will rule over all things for eternity. 
This is a psalm that was sung by people who, who weren't necessarily experiencing the physical, material realities of God's kingship. We don't live in paradise. I'm sick of people telling me that since I've moved to Parksville. <laughs> I sure hope this is not paradise. But it's a song that's been sung with the eyes of faith by God's people for centuries. And it is the divine realities of God's great power that needs to penetrate our thinking, to animate our worship, and to fill our perspective on the world in which we live. And that's the great value of the Psalms. It begins with the phrase, clap your hands. And I'm one of those persons who claps on the inside. I don't know, I'm just not a very demonstrative person. I'm shouting on the inside right now. But an old writer said that uh, the thing about clapping is that you can't do it with your hands full. Ever try to clap with your hands full? I mean, try to, and, and so all, your, all the stuff that you carry, the stuff of life, you've got you to put it down when you clap. And a very simple metaphor of what it's like to come into the presence of the Lord. Clap your hands, all peoples, and shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord the Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. Notice the universal nature of it. He subdued people under us. And this is what I think is such a wonderful pointing towards Pentecost as well as the second coming of our Lord. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. You know, the world is our inheritance. Christ ascended, and in the power of the Spirit, gave his gospel to be proclaimed to every tongue and language and, and nation on earth. Verse 5. God has gone up with a shout, a description of the Lord's, of God's ascendancy. The Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our King, sing praises, for God is the King of all the earth. Notice the indicative nature of the verbs used here. He is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the people gather together. And just a way of describing every single person on earth. The princes of the people gather together as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. Shields is just a, a word that re refers to, to the pride of nations, to the identity of nations. And, and again, identifies literally uh, every single person on earth uh, assigned to some sort of earthly identity. And it all belongs to God. It's an incredible proclamation of God's omnipotence. And the last phrase, he is highly exalted. The message of the psalm is pretty much the same as God's word to Abraham, right? Right at the beginning, there, there, there's bookends in the scripture of, of God's dealings with his people that have to do with this theme of omnipotence. Because God said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, he says, walk before me. And I'm so glad he didn't stop there. Imagine if God just said, walk before me. He said, walk before me. I am God Almighty. 
It's the same theme that we find, as I say, as, as the other bookend of God's dealings with, with his people, the children of Abraham and, his, and his, his dealings with the people of God and his purposes for them in the world. Revelation 19.6 has this proclamation, Hallelujah, for the Lord Almighty reigns. And so here's what I'm going to do for the next few minutes. I want to try to make you think about transcendent omnipotence which simply means God's great power. It is immeasurable, and it is incomprehensible. And some people don't like words like that because they want a God that they can put in their pocket. A God that can be measured, a God that can be understood, but I feel exactly the opposite. I want to live in the divine realities of, of somebody who, who isn't merely eminent or, or preeminent, but transcendent, whose greatness is not just on a, on, a, on, a, on a great scale above me and above someone stronger than me and above Superman and up there somewhere, but in a completely different realm that is incomprehensible to me. I don't want a God that can be measured or understood. And that, that, that's not to make God distant and far away and unattainable and unapproachable. It's to make God my greatest source of hope and comfort. And so I'm going to try to make you think about omnipotence tonight. And I'm going to frame my thoughts around a particular question that I learned to ask in my own life and about the world around me. And it came into my life through thinking about technology because technology is always uh, saying that I've, I've got a solution for you. I've got a solution for this, I've got a solution for that. The trouble with technology sometimes is we don't understand the problem for which the technology is the solution. And sometimes we use technology, we think it's a solution for which there has absolutely been no problem. Particularly technology companies are good at selling us stuff that are solutions for things that aren't really a problem. I have a little iPad mini at home. I picked it up on the internet for a really, really cheap price. I don't know why I bought it. I don't need it. I bought it because I could. And I, I can't figure out what problem my iPad mini is the solution for, unless it's a problem that I can't shop from Amazon while laying on my bed. And so here's the question I'm going to use to frame thoughts to try to make you think about omnipotence tonight. What is the problem for which divine omnipotency is the solution? What is the problem in this world? Remember, we don't live in paradise. What is the problem for which God's all-powerness, His almightiness, His transcendent omnipotence that this psalm proclaims, what is the problem for which this is the solution? In other words, how do these things actually help us in our lives. You see, perseverance isn't magic. The work of the Holy Spirit isn't weird. The work of the Spirit is to, is to take the knowledge of God and to make it so incredibly rich and powerful to us that we can't do in our own human understanding and reasoning. The first one there's three, three problems I'm going to identify. The first one is the problem of idolatry. The second one is the problem of despair. And the third one is the problem of fear. First of all, the problem of idolatry. Idolatry is adulation misplaced. 
You know what I mean by adulation? There's a lot of adulation in the psalm, a lot of singing. It's the kind of thing that I said I do on the inside more than on the outside. Idolatry is adulation misplaced. And that's a problem. There's a lot of adulation in this psalm. Singing, shouting, clapping. And grasping God's omnipotent power. His greatness. In the power of the Holy Spirit, when this divine reality penetrates into our dullness and our doubt and our unbelief, and we feel our soul feeding on it, it keeps us safe from the human problem of giving adulation for ascribing greatness, for trusting in things that will only bring us shame in the end and not vindication. I listen to a number of podcasts every day and I enjoyed listening to an interview with an author by the name of Paul Tripp this week. I'm going to read a quote by by this man. He's an author of a, of a book called, I don't know, I forget. It's a good book, I'm sure. But uh, his name is Paul Tripp, and it's very C.S. Lewis-ish, but I trust him. It's okay. They're good thoughts. And uh, human beings are hardwired for glory, he says. I like that. It, it's speaking something about human nature, and it has to do with this problem and I'm talking about a misplaced adulation. Human beings are hardwired for glory, for awe, to have our minds blown, to have our hearts expanded, to be taken beyond the normal and the mundane, to be absorbed into what is wonderful and beautiful and satisfying. This is something that is uniquely human. It's why we like the triple overtime game in sports. It's why we like the seven-layer moose cake instead of just the normal cake. It's why we like movies that keep us on the edge of our seat. Actually, I don't like movies like that, but I know what he means. These are created sorts of glories. Animals aren't like that. Animals aren't hardwired for glory. The penguins don't score each other as they jump off the ice. 9.5 out of 10. The rhino never says to the zebra, dude, where'd you get that coat? It's awesome. Humans do that. We give adulation. And he says this glory hardwiring is meant to drive us to God. The problem is that we tend to replace the glory of the Creator with the glory of creation. And our hearts tend, we tend to think that our hearts can get satisfied by these created glories and think that they can comfort our heart. But those are created glories. And they're only there to point us to the greater glory that can truly satisfy. Earth and its glory will never give me meaning, will never satisfy me. And that is the war that we humans are engaged in. It's a glory war. And you read through the scriptures, God always wins glory wars. He won it with Pharaoh, and he's going to win it with Satan. Secondly, the problem of despair. If we somehow think that there is something that can overrule God's will and God's purposes, it will lead us to despair. That's a problem. 
or if we think that there is some blemish that we have created by our own foolishness, that God does not possess the authority and the power to remove, we will despair. And I long for Christians to know the omnipotent power of God to remove all sin from their lives, to never think that they're a junior partner in their salvation, to bask in the glory of God's omnipotent power to redeem his people with sovereign might. The key word here is the word ascended, or verse 5 that says God has gone up with a shout. Some of the translations say that God is ascended. It's what a king would do after, after a great victory. He would ascend, and, and, his, and his people would give him this adulation because he is a king of victory. And that is what this psalm is. It's a declaration of God as one who only ever has victory. He has ascendancy over all that ever stands opposed to him, and he will have ascendancy over all that is and ever will be standing in opposition to him. And it's this kind of divine omnipotency that the Spirit of God soothes and helps the despairing soul to endure. You know, when we suffer and when we And when we feel the guilt of sin, instinctively, what goes on in our, our, our human thought process and, and, and the way that we respond to the circumstances in which we live, we're, we're, we're instinctively measuring God all the time. Is, is, is this overruling you, God? Is, is, is there something greater than you? Is, is there something that, that can't be, that is so deeply marred me that it, that it can't be taken away? How great are you, God? We're instinctively always measuring what God is like in terms of his power. And this is why this is food for the soul. I'm not telling you something that, that, that you don't already know. This is, this is the kind of thing that, that we all know, but, it, but it, it's given to us for, for food that we would continually feed upon this knowledge, and it's by that knowledge that we persevere. God is immeasurable in His power. God is incomprehensible in His power. And despair is a problem for which divine omnipotency is the solution. Third one is fear, anxiety. If we somehow think that human history is a random thing, if we think that human history is something that has no secure end, if we think that human history is something that is just set on its own, in its own trajectory, and it's going to only live in its own implications of its actions, that's a fearful thing. It'd make you want to tell your children not to have grandchildren, your grandchildren. It 
Verse 8 says, God reigns over the nations. That is an incredible declaration. God sits on his holy throne, a place of rule and power. God. The princes of the people gather as the people of the God of Abraham. God, God owns them. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. The world is a turbulent place. Just in the news this week, if you, I mean, I don't watch television, but I, I read the headlines every day in three or four Canadian newspapers. And I know that the world is a turbulent place. People, of course, face tragedy and difficulty every day, but, but on, a, on, a, on a whole global scale, there's, there's, there's room and there's reason for, for a lot of insecurity, a lot of anxiety, and a, and a lot of fear. Look at what's going on in Europe right now. I mean, Greece is broke. They owe billions of euros to, and the whole European experiment, Eurozone experiment is, is kind of tripping up and following Russia is belligerent again. The G7 met last week to reenact all of the policies of the Cold War. The Shiites hate the Sunnis. They're killing each other. Syria is on fire. Gaza is a prison. Europe's being flooded with some tens of millions of refugees trying to cross the Mediterranean to get out of Africa just, just, just to save their lives. The West is crumbling. It's decadent. It's godless. God reigns over the nations. God said to the king of Babylon in Daniel 4, the most high rules over the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he will. It's kind of a preparation as we jump into the book of Revelation here in a couple of weeks. Such a powerful theme through that book as well. All of the nations belong to God. Divine omnipotence is a solution to the human problems of idolatry, of despair and of fear. And it's not, not hard to see how we get to Christ from, from this psalm. Our Lord is an ascended Lord. He ascended in, in so many different ways. He ascended, first of all, to the cross. He, was, you know, he wasn't just pinned to a cross outside of his own will. He, he ascended to the cross where he put to death, all of the authority and the power of sin. I, I, I love the, the little picture of the authority of Christ who ascended to the cross and what he says to the thief on the cross. Because the thief on the cross is a picture of all of the authority of the kingdoms of men. And he can pin a person to a tree. And Jesus says, I can give you paradise. Tremendous words of authority. That man who's, who's, who's living under the, the subjection and, and the bondage and, and, and the, the very physical trauma of what human kings can do. And he says, I will give you paradise. 
Then he ascended from the grave. What, what greater hope is there in the, in the Christian faith to say that we believe that our Lord is risen from the dead, that all of the griefs, all of the struggles, all of the pain, all of the times we have to say goodbye, all of those are temporary griefs. What a, a tremendous hope and omnipotence to believe that God will raise the dead. It's incomprehensible. And it's immeasurable in its power. And then He ascended into heaven where He rules over all things. And He has established our inheritance just as the psalm says. It's an inheritance of salvation. And it gives us the hope and the power and the ability to proclaim to every tribe, language, and people that our Lord Jesus truly is King. He is a triumphant King who is enthroned, who is ascended and rules over all. You know those little picture magnets you have of, of people who who live in Turkey and and Pakistan and Africa. You know that that's that's all tied to, to this this Christian hope of the ascendancy of our Lord over over all things. And praying to that end that the kingdom of God would come and be on earth as it is in heaven. Listen to these, in conclusion, these few words of the Apostle Paul. In Colossians 1 says that it is by all, it is through Christ that all things were made and through whom now all things hold together. He says in Ephesians 4.10, it is who came to earth and is now ascended far above all the heavens. Ephesians 1.22, that God put all things under His feet and gave Him His head over all things. Colossians 2.15, that He dis- disarmed all the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. The Peter at Pentecost, know for certain that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. John in the book of Revelation says of Jesus Christ, or Christ says of Himself to John, I am the one who is and who was and who is to come. The Almighty. So, it's my simple encouragement. Encourage you in the Lord tonight that the divine realities of the knowledge of God would penetrate our thoughts about our experiences in this world. That our circumstances would not rule us. That the Spirit of God would feed us on the knowledge of Himself to worship Him as He truly is. That we would have no misplaced worship. Our God is not a little God. That it would keep us from despair and it would keep us from fear. God, help us and be with us. Can I pray with you? A gracious and mighty God. Lord, abide with us, I pray, in your power. Lord, take all of our weakness. Lord, take all of our frailty. Take all of the work of Satan in this world to deceive and blind and distract. And Lord, renew us, I pray. Awaken us and, and refresh us in the knowledge of Yourself. And Lord, may You fill our hearts with joy, hope, and thanksgiving. To Your glory we pray and for our profit. Amen.